You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast, and I'm here with a very special guest, Mr. Olivier Mueller of Lux Consult. Um, Mr. Mueller is someone I've known for a number of years, and I call him Mr. Mueller because he is a real professional. He has been a guide. He is a consultant, of course. He has run brands. He's the type of person who goes around to a lot of the, the, the power makers um, in Switzerland, a lot of the, the, the decision makers and the leaders in management, and in various ways, either by leadership of a company or through consultation, helps them to do what they're doing better. And one of the things that you, Olivier, and I have in common is we both are attracted to the watch industry, primarily out of a love of watches, and we try to apply those things that we're good at to this industry, right? But it's really a love of watches. You know, it, 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 at some points, the people here and some of the practices and, and, and some of the dogma, it infuriates us, yet we love the product. Um, and that's what keeps us here. Um, how would you uh, uh, modify or add to what I said about you? It's perfect. Thank you for the introduction, uh, Ariel. Uh, we are both watch geeks and we have a critical look at people making the watches. Yes, exactly. Now, what I thought that you could do for the listeners of Superlative is help explain, especially from the Swiss perspective, what is going on in the watch industry right now? People love the beautiful products um, that are still made today, even during the pandemic, even though factories are slowed. But you're right there on the ground. You know it's on people's minds. Switzerland is a very special part of the world. There's a lot of things about Switzerland as a country, as a financial system, as a people's government. It's very unique that there's nothing like it anywhere in the world. And, and accordingly, there's very few places in the world that can make um, beautiful luxury watches. So I guess right now, what are some of the top things on the minds of the people running watch brands right now in you know, mid-November mid of 2020? We are experiencing the worst year since 80 years. That's uh, something quite striking when I tell people uh, wherever you want to put the comparison, but we are getting back this year to volumes we had in the 1940s, just after World War II. Wow. So it's quite striking when you tell people that we are losing volumes. Why are we losing volumes? Because, of course, there is the pandemic, which brings a lot of problems with shops closing, etc., etc. But the other big part of the explanation why we are losing volumes in the entry level of the watch market, it's because of the smart watches where we didn't do a good job, uh, we the Swiss watchmakers. Okay, so you you sort of focused on a couple of specific things there. It sounds like the watch industry has massive problems right now, you know, given the pandemic. And, but you're saying that there are solutions to it. There's may, maybe things they've ignored and stuff like that. Would you say that that is something that everyone knows? You're in a company, you run it, it's your brand. Do you recognize that the context is this is the worst in 80 years? Or is this something that only particular people with special knowledge uh, really appreciate? Audi, I think Every every single person now in the watch industry has recognized that we have a a uh, double problem at the same time, and 
economic uh, recession uh, around the world, except for um, industries linked to uh, digital things like uh, the one we're just using right now. They are growing, of course. Zoom. And, <laughs> and the, yeah, exactly. And the luxury uh, segment is is going very well because a lot of people are making a lot of money with the stock markets, etc., etc. So the world didn't crash, but the world is changing very fast and we have to adapt uh, the way we, we look at the market, at the new consumers, etc. But I think to answer your question uh, uh, straightforward, uh, yes, everybody now is aware that we are facing a very unique situation. Um, but it's the good news is it's an industry used to manage crises. They're, they're used to managing crisis. Give us an example of a crisis that they were very good at managing. Yeah, we, I think um, there were, recently I read a very interesting article uh, where, where it was lined out that in average since the beginning of the 19th century, we had on average every three years we had a crisis, bigger, smaller. We had the, the SARS, uh, we had the, 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 some wars going on around the world, et cetera, which brought down the economic uh, uh, activities, et cetera, et cetera. So we always somehow managed to get back on track. What is helping currently to get back on track, of course, is China, because China got back to normality, if I can, if we can say so. Uh, the shops reopened, so the whole economical situation got back to almost normal. So, okay, I have that's an interesting statement. You said a lot of important things there. From the country known for private banking and a certain amount of security and, and you know, predictability, I think Swiss count everything carefully and Swiss tend to make, um, you know, very conservative um, fiscal decisions. But you said something that kind of struck me, and that is every three years or so, maybe a little bit longer, there's some type of crash. Maybe... Maybe that's not the problem. Maybe there isn't an economic crash every three or four years or so. Maybe it's just the watch industry uh, puts too much of its eggs in one basket at a time and doesn't diversify well enough. That's perhaps another way of looking at it. Is that is that a systemic problem of the watch industry where there tends to be a lot of follow the leader and not really enough healthy market segmentation? There is a systemic problem uh, beyond any questioning. There is a structural problem uh, uh, within the watch industry that's beyond questioning. And when you have an economic crisis coming on top of the systemic or structural problem of an industry, then of course things go very bad. And I completely agree with you. We have too many eggs in one basket and that basket is called Asia and we can even focus more on China. The brands doing their job well have begun or ever did uh, diversifying their business all over the world. Those are the ones who are doing not so bad currently, but the ones who focus only on one market, they have a huge issue. And uh, beyond that, we should always uh, question how we talk to the new uh, generations of consumers, et cetera, et cetera. That's another big topic. This is another question that is a little bit off topic, but I think is a bigger question that helps answer a lot of the other ones. And this has to do with the money for the watch industry. 
What are the types of people who are ultimately making the decisions about spending this much budget here or spending this much budget there? Because I think you and I agree that many of these companies clearly have enough money that if they spent it wisely, they could, they could in a lot of ways be doing better than they are right now. So who are the types of people who are actually making these financial decisions and why are they so separated from perhaps the best, uh, the best intentions of the brands? There are many times people who are not forward thinking, not visionary. Um, they are trying to, to stick to, uh, to something they know that's very human. Uh, you go always back into your comfort zone. Even the more when the boat is uh, starting to shake, you are trying to get back to what you know, what you were used to. And you think that recipes which used to work 20 years ago will work again. You try to reapply uh, the same magic recipe that you had applied during the last uh, crisis. And that's not maybe not the way to go. Um, we are probably too much backward uh, thinking and trying to stick to things which don't work anymore today. The way of communicating, the way of selling, the way of promoting, etc., etc., have changed quite dramatically in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years. But many people haven't understood that. Well, consider this irony for a moment, okay? I, I, of course, agree with you. Everything you say is correct when it comes to business decisions such as marketing and distribution. Yet at the same time, the people in the same company have to contend with the reality that the product they sell, not just the fact that it's a mechanical watch that is no longer state-of-the-art or hasn't been state-of-the-art since the 1970s or the late 1960s, arguably, but <laughs> the designs themselves are in many forms, modern replicas of designs that were originated a long time ago, in, insofar that your product has conservatism and tradition written all over it, yet you're asked to have a completely different mindset uh, when it comes to these other arms of the company, such as distribution, marketing, and advertising. Is this simply asking too much of the people at, a, at relatively small companies? No, I don't think it's an issue of how much money you have, how uh, uh, how many people you have, etc. I don't think that small companies do manage uh, 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 those issues uh, better, worse. I don't know. I think some small companies um, address the right questions today. Uh, I always take uh, the example of MB&F uh, with Max Busser and his team. They do an excellent job because they are forward thinking. But of course, they have a small boat, so they can react much faster. If you are the boss of Rolex or Omega, you have a huge, huge ship which you can't just change uh, every other minute. So. You have to consider a lot of things, etc. And the point that you're bringing up is exactly the right one. On the one side, you are in a very traditional uh, product. People expect from you that you that you don't change uh, uh, the product every year, even though you can innovate, but you are not expected to uh, disrupt your whole uh, way of of, of making your product. And on the other side, you have disruption and those disruptions are direct to consumer, 
the digital, etc., etc. So there are uh, a lot of new challenges coming towards the brand, and it's the way they are coping it. I don't think it's an issue of size. It's an issue of mindset. You can have a small brand acting in a very clever way, and you can have big brands acting not so cleverly because they are trying to stick again to things that they know or they have been used to. One of the things that I find so interesting about the questions that watch brands asked me and I probably asked you on a regular basis is who is doing it right? And for the longest time as a consultant like you, you know, I have a legal background, so similar type of desire to want to help the consumer or the client. And you, you sort of cringe at the question because you know inherently that copying someone else's strategy is by no means a guarantee that it'll work for you. Yet, I've been asked this question so many times, I've come to realize that is in essence the business model that many brands have. They are not originalists by design. The people who got into the business basically said, isn't it nice to do something the same way that's been done a long time and just make money because there's always a market out there for it? It may be that there is no successful traditional model that works right now. And thus people are waiting for something to copy because there's nothing that really is a good model. There's not a lot of sustainable business models out there and there will be, but right now there's a vacuum. Do you think there's any truth to the statement? I would definitely agree with that. Um, but it's not specific to the watch industry. You can, uh, you can uh, go forward in any industry. It can be the car industry. You have very few leaders and you have a lot of people uh, following. I mean, the Germans made electrical car beginning of the 20th century. And if you would read interviews of, of big managers of the German car industry, uh, 15 years ago, they, they would tell you that the, the electrical cars would always remain a very niche uh, share of the, of the market. And today, uh, if you look what uh, Elon Musk achieved, I mean, he's a visionary and you can apply exactly the same to the watch industry. The difference of the watch industry is there are many more brands competing. So there are many more followers that that that's the thing and you have very few visionary brands um a good example of someone who really did something innovative about 20 years ago is richard mill if you look at richard mill everything was you know the way they communicate the product identity etc etc that was really innovative and everyone tries not everyone but many people try to 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 copy or at least get some inspiration from from that uh, uh, from that brand. Um, I don't think it's so much different in other industries. It's that it's just that we are in a small industry with many brands, maybe too many brands. Now, speaking of many brands, we at a blog to watch receive. I, I couldn't tell you a specific number, but sometimes it's multiple a day. For today, it was three that came in. And this is information about a brand new brand. Sometimes people call them micro brands, but there is such a high volume of these little brands coming out. Uh, you know, similar uh, to businesses, there's this 80-20 rule. It's probably even worse uh, for them where, you know, more than more than 80% uh, of them will fail. But 
there's this enormous sense of entrepreneurialism in the watch industry. I wouldn't call it related necessarily to the luxury watch industry, but you know, it, it's, it's creeping slowly, slowly in that direction. And so the question is, how are the traditional brands reacting, thinking? What are they, what are they feeling when it's challenging, challenging for them? And at the same time, they see all these would-be entrepreneurs coming in, sometimes with just one watch and oftentimes it's not very good, into the, a space that is already relatively crowded. Uh, what are some of the conversations about this type of behavior in Switzerland? I've always been curious. Yeah. Um, it's a, yeah, the, the, the point you are bringing up is the two to three new so-called brands, micro brands, however you want to call them every week, somewhere around the world. That is due to a very simple fact. It's that uh, with crowdfunding, etc., the entry, uh, tickets got much lower. The downside of this evolution is that there are many more people coming to social media, making a lot of noise. And there uh, we get to the big brands. How do they react? They are sometimes they are very much challenged because you have a young guy coming out of nowhere. I would like to take the example of uh, Daniel Wellington. And this guy comes up from nowhere the watch, the product, sorry to say so, is nothing revolutionary. I, w- I wouldn't wear it. You would? <laughs> nope, not on me. <laughs> I wouldn't either. But, but anyway, the guy, he starts from nowhere. He gets to $250 million sales. He sells two and a half million watches a year. So fantastic success story. And now that's a small anecdote. Uh, what, I'm with the CEO of one of the, of, of the big watch brands, one guy I'm advising, very clever guy, one of the very few in the Swiss watch industry thinking straightforward. And I tell the guy, it was about three or four years ago we had this conversation. And I say to him, do you see Daniel Wellington, that brand out of nowhere? You know what? They have 47 people in Hong Kong working on their digital marketing. Everything comes through Instagram, WeChat, et cetera, et cetera. That's a lot of and people. You, uh, pardon me? That's a lot of people. That's a big it's social a media people. team. I've never heard of one so big. That's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. But they do an excellent job and they... Uh, but that's what it takes. That's expensive. Like brands think it's like, oh, we'll get some intern and they'll handle our social media marketing. Like, a for, like most of these watch brands aren't even 47 people. Absolutely. And then I tell the CEO of my Swiss watch brand, I say, listen, 47, how many people do work with you uh, who are in charge of, of, of uh, digital marketing? Three. I said, you know what? You should start thinking of not hiring new people on top, but you should shift the knowledge that you need today. The guy who is in charge of, I don't know, uh, print uh, advertising, you have how many? Two, three there? Okay, maybe you should shift uh, two of the three towards the digital or hire new people with, with new knowledge. That, that's the issue, that you have to, to adapt to new realities. And that's where, to answer your question of before, that's where the traditional brands sometimes they have a long, long learning curve to finally understand that today it's not the guy writing for a very prestigious title uh, in the print uh, who will make the difference. Maybe it's the 
small uh, blogger, unknown. I mean, I have seen all you guys uh, starting. Uh, <laughs> at the beginning, you were a one-man show with, with uh, you know, taking pictures and asking politely if you could uh, come in and see the new products. And then... <laughs> and <laughs> No, but that's true, Ariel. Yeah, you know yeah, that. Yeah. And then it shifted completely on the opposite side. The guy who was the star of what I'm not going to name any newspaper, but he used to be a star. And all of a sudden, he was second priority. And Ariel Adams and all uh, the other ones uh, from from your competing uh, watch blogs, they were the star all, the, all of a sudden. Well, we we ended up giving a lot more, you know. I, okay, so let me let me go back because I want to talk about something important. You brought up some interesting stuff related to media, which I'd love to cover. But going back to this topic about these brands being a little bit too traditional, you know, one of the things we haven't mentioned is that these duties to do marketing and and advertising and communication these are relatively new duties. Until not too long ago, there was distributors and retailers. And in a lot of senses, other companies that would handle this. Now, because the watch brands all wanted to own their own distributorships, they have, have expanded duties. Is there a chance that the roles uh, it might go back and we now have third-party distributors again making a lot of marketing and advertising decisions? Or now that the watch brands have this control, do you think they'll never let it go, even if it ultimately hurts them? There is no way back. It's irreversible. Oh, really? It's, uh, I'm 100% convinced of that. There is no way back. But the, I know why you, why you bring up uh, that topic, Ariel, because I, I read <laughs> regularly what you're writing, and you have a good point on saying that jack of all trades is master of none. I agree partially with that. Um, it's not saying now I'm going to handle my distribution. Now I'm going to handle my retail. Now I'm going to handle my digital communication and just, you know, deciding that you do that internally because you need people who know how to handle that job. Retail is, is not the job of a watch brand in the first place, but I think it's irreversible. Why? Because when you are a strong brand, you want to control the image of your brand. If you have a distributor, a retailer, multi-brand retailer, etc., everything gets complicated. But let's be straightforward. There are very, very few brands with the power, with the brand equity, with uh, the recognition by the clients who are capable of having a monobrand boutique who are capable of handling all this stuff. I mean, there are good and bad examples. Uh, the good examples, Richard Mill. But of course, when you do 5,000 watches a year, you don't need hundreds of multi-brand retailers. So they reduce that to 42 monobrand boutiques around the world. They handle everything directly, but they were clever because they set up joint ventures so they went to their retailers and they said, okay, we are going to sell only through monobrand boutiques. We are going to handle that together. We will share the margin. The margin, of course, came down a lot. But when you sell a watch at a few hundred thousand euros, you're still happy to, to get a small chunk of it. It's still a lot of money. So it's 
for me, it's irreversible. It's not that somehow the distributor will get back into the game with the big names. They will stay in the game and the retailers as well with new brands, small brands, etc., etc. But for the big brands, uh, unfortunately, with two exceptions, the exceptions are Rolex for the time being and Patek Philippe. And they are not doing this because they are visionary. They are doing this because they are very conservative and they don't need to change from one day to the other. But even Rolex is starting to reduce its retail, its retail network. And you will see in the years to come that they will push forward to more monobrand boutiques, shopping shops, et cetera, where you will find only Rolex and no other brand. So that's a bit of a grim image of them being globalists, right? Because in a sense, they want to control everything, all the decision-making, even though they're sold all around the world. Um, there has been a lot of pushback because in a lot of countries, including the United States, where there was a Swiss watch brand office once uh, staffed by you know natives of that country, Americans uh, or people from various Asian countries or whatnot. Now, in a lot of a lot of instances, those are people from Switzerland and France and sometimes Germany or, or possibly Italy that are are traveling to those countries for a couple of years only uh, to run the markets. And I know that there's been pushback in a lot of ways. Um, what are what are the people in Switzerland saying in response to that pushback of you should hire Americans in America and, you know, Chinese people, your boutiques in China and, and things like that. And of course, the boutiques, it's, uh, those are natives. But I'm talking about the management. I'm talking about the decision making. I'm talking about who really is controlling uh, the, the, the direction of the brand in those countries. Yes. I definitely agree with you that that's an issue. That's a huge issue. You shouldn't you shouldn't send out. Uh, like the British Empire once upon a time, uh, your own people to manage <laughs> countries. <laughs> no, but it's the same way of thinking. It's yeah, exactly it's colonialism. This. Yeah, it's exactly. That's the right term. It's well, you don't know luxury. We know luxury. We have to take it to your market and jealously hold its secrets. Uh, Absolutely. But that's the same at Louis Vuitton, Gucci and name them. They all do that, that same. Can we call it a mistake? For me, it's a mistake. Uh, I think that when you sell in India or in China, you got completely different cultures. You can have people adapting, trying to understand how the local culture works, if they know the language if they have been living there for years, etc., But you certainly have to have uh, local management to understand how it works. Because, I mean, Japan is a different planet from China and certainly a different planet from uh, Switzerland. So, yes, that's definitely an issue. You shouldn't go out there and tell people, we know how to manage this stuff. I, I very... On a personal point, I very often hear from, from friends, et cetera, et cetera. They tell me, you know, the guy, they just uh, promoted to whatever brand manager of a country. The guy, he's not good, but his only qualification is Swiss. <laughs> say, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, and sometimes I have to agree with that. And, but it works the same way in French, in Italian, 
in American companies because you think that your own people understand what you do. And that's very, yeah, it's a colonial attitude where you send out people and you tell them, you know, teach the people how you do the, the well, things the right l- let way. Let me ask you a question. There's yes. one reason to hire a fellow Swiss because you're, you're protective of your culture. You want to keep resources and expertise, you know, within, within your people. But then there's the other thing which you said, which is you, you hire a Swiss person not because of any special affinity to Switzerland, but because you think only another Swiss person will will get you. Uh, and, and is that you know it, which one of those is it? And if it's the latter, what exactly you know? Try to explain what what can a Swiss person understand that a non-Swiss person just would not understand. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> that's a very tricky question. There is nothing I think a non-Swiss uh, couldn't understand. I my very personal opinion is, and and that open up the topic a little bit furthermore. Why is it such a closed industry? Why are there so many Swiss or French, Richemont, LVMH? Uh, running the show. Why do we not recruit people from other industries? And why do we think that the Swiss understands better or he has more affinity with the brand? I don't think it's it's that way. I think that uh, if you have someone working for, uh, let's say, Patek Philippe for 20 years in Japan, he has the company culture at least as developed as someone working at the headquarters in Geneva. Yeah, so, you think so. You think so. I do. Yeah, no, I, I mean, what, I, what one would think so. Like, I agree with you that that's, that's the likely outcome. And sometimes those people who see it from afar, they actually drink the Kool-Aid in a slightly different way. They're not as jaded. And they actually become even better ambassadors than your own people. So uh, I, I agree with you 100%. So again, faced with this logic what is their response? Help, help, help people understand a little bit of the Swiss mentality. Yeah, the Swiss, you know, the, the, it's, but it, it's, not, um, it's not very unique to the Swiss. I think you can find that uh, with, with the French culture, Italian culture, again, it's, and, or the Brits. Uh, the, the, we are a small country. We are a very small industry. There are about 60,000 people overall in the Swiss watch industry. So it's a very small industry um, compared worldwide uh, with with other industries. So we are very, very close. Everyone knows everyone, etc. We are not very open to take uh, uh, challenges, etc., etc. Um, the watch industry is very much on the French side of the country, which brings also some challenges or differences with the overall, because Switzerland is not one country. Switzerland is an accumulation of different countries, just as uh, Germany is. Many people don't understand that from overseas. Uh, Switzerland is very much different if you're on the German, on the Italian, or on the French side. The French and the German speaking, I, I, am, I was born in Zurich. Uh, my mother tongue is uh, German. Uh, but I grew up in Geneva, so I understand very well the differences between the two cultures. So that brings another another challenge. But I think it's nothing unique to the to the Swiss watchmaking industry. It's just affinity and the way you know 
thinking that you can communicate more easily because you speak in your mother tongue, I'm not so much convinced it's the case. I think it's much more interesting to have people, you know, from different cultures, with different languages, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that brings a lot more creativity and a lot more innovation than to talk to, to all the guys you went to school with. Right. No, that totally makes sense. But at the same time, as an American, you think that Europe being the multi multicultural place it is, there'd be more of an appetite for outside opinion or more of an open to it, openness to it. Whereas you're saying it's actually hyper the opposite way, that even within the same country, there's yes. all these boundaries and things like that that people don't want to cross. And it's it's I don't know, I'm not saying it's an illusion, but the sort of notion of the the European melting pot, as they like to be associated with the American melting pot, uh, it doesn't really work the same way. Not at all. If you compare, uh, taking the example from the US, if you compare New York to Switzerland, I think in New York, you have a real melting pot. In London, you have a melting pot because you, you will have a Polish guy talking to a Pakistani and they will have more things in common because there will be uh, they will have both immigrated to a country and more or less accepted the new culture, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in Switzerland, we have had the last 20 years uh, a lot of immigration and that improved the situation because now when I go shopping, when I go to the restaurant, I hear a lot of people talking in English, et cetera, et cetera. And that brings a lot uh, of changes to the, to the culture. Unfortunately, I must say, uh, the watch industry is still very traditional uh, in that way. So you have the uh, CEOs talking in English and the last ceremony of the GPHG with some uh, CEOs talking in English was some of them, uh, they should better avoid uh, speaking in Shakespeare language because it was just a mess. But it's just, you know... It's not because you speak a different language that you open up to new cultures. I, I think opening up to new cultures is what they are trying to do at Google, at Microsoft, at Tesla, or even at L'Oreal. I used to work a long time ago. I used to work at L'Oreal. L'Oreal is promoting. It's a, it's a really, really French company, but within the company, you have about a hundred different nationalities and they promote that it's not because you are french that you're going to have a straightforward uh, career plan and uh, the reverse applies it's not because you are uh, indian that you won't make it to the top so okay let me ask you about l'oreal because l'oreal is a cosmetics company and a disproportionately high number of watch industry people i meet have worked at l'oreal now i know that obviously <laughs> L'Oreal has offices in Geneva and things like that. That makes sense. But why is it that the cosmetics industry seems to feed so many people into the watch industry? I've never quite understood that. Is it just proximity yeah. or is there something else? No, it's it's something completely different. And, and we would do good to get some inspiration from the company culture of L'Oreal. 
It's the best school, one of the best schools. I don't want to say the best school, but one of the best schools in marketing, branding, logistics, etc., etc. It's one of the top companies in the world where you can learn how to develop a product, how to sell it, how to promote it, how to manufacture it. So that's a very good school. That's why so uh, many people are coming. The boss, uh, the boss of uh, Bulgari. Mr. Baban is yeah. an ex-Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble is an excellent marketing school. So that's a good thing. If we take people from outside industries, coming and bringing their knowledge to a small industry, I think that's a, that's a good move. Now, the other way around doesn't really work out so much, right? People don't go to the watch industry and suddenly become very, very skilled to do other things. Or am I mm -hmm. wrong? Is the watch industry also a good platform for certain managers to jump somewhere else? And what no. are those industries if, if they exist? No, they are not. They, they, it's very rare that someone moves out of the watch industry and goes somewhere else. And that's, that's also one issue we are facing it's that on the top level, you always see the same people. They, it's not that they would dare to, to move to another industry, but I'm the same. I'm in my comfort zone. I know everyone. I know how the things work, et cetera, et cetera. Why would I go into the uh, car industry? You know what? I tell you just in 10 seconds, quick anecdotes. I lived in London. I come back to Switzerland. After two weeks, there is a... Uh, a headhunter from the UK calling me and offering me a job That's as, nice. the, as the executive director of a Formula One racing team. Wow. I said to the guy, why do you call me up for that job? I love cars, but I have no clue how to build an engine. And the guy says to me, you know, we know what you have done before in the watch industry, that you have set up manufacturing activities, that you were in charge of supply chain, that you develop products, et cetera, et cetera. And we think that a lot of your knowledge would apply perfectly to the Formula One because it's also very small quantities, very high-end product, et cetera, et cetera. So just to say, I maybe uh, we would have some knowledge which could apply somewhere else. But honestly, I have never seen anyone, you know, moving from, uh, I don't know, from a big watch brand to a big uh, cosmetics company. You know why I actually agree with you? Because I've always thought that the biggest shame of the watch industry is how unfortunate it is that it has to make a profit, right? Formula One doesn't have to make a prof profit. Formula One just spends money. Wouldn't it be True. great if the watch industry was just focused on spending money? <laughs> That's the way it should be, right? There used to be some there used to be these really rich companies or individuals that had watch brands as a as a slush fund, you know? Uh, <laughs> have parties through it, tax write-offs through it, losses through it, you know, uh, employ your friends and you know, it's it's the ultimate vanity company is having a, a luxury watch brand. Why can't we go back to that? Maybe we should. Uh, no, I don't think we should. I don't think I think the best motivator and pushing to excellence is to make money. Uh, I always say for me, a success story at the end of the day, as nice as the brand is, as nice as the products are, is when you sell and you make money out of it. Really, I uh, set up a small high-end brand called Laurent Ferrier. 
My main goal, because I, I, I was doing this on behalf of an investor, um, I, I, you know, I had to focus on selling, making money. That doesn't mean that you are not passionate. That doesn't mean that you don't do nice products. And that doesn't mean that you don't plan for, for, for the long term. So I have, but now to be very honest with you, sometimes I have some clients who ask me to set up a new brand and obviously uh, they don't need to make any money. It's just not out of fun, but you know, out of ego or whatever to do something nice because they make a lot of money in different industries or at the stock market, et cetera. And one day they show up and they say, Mr. Muller, we would like to, you, we know that you, you, you manage this business, set up a new uh, brand, do whatever you want to do. We fund this and, and here we go. But I don't think, you know, if, if Rolex, which is owned by, by a trust, it's not, uh, it's not stock listed, et cetera, et cetera. They don't uh, pay out dividends to individuals, etc. Yeah, it's like a foundation. It's like they're not it's really a supposed foundation, to exactly. Yeah. So if that foundation uh, all of a sudden would say, you know, we don't care. You make money. You don't make money. Uh, we don't care. I don't think it would be a good motivator for for the CEO of the brand to think whatever happens, they will be happy. I think it's much better. The more money they make at Rolex the more they can give back to the community, which is the fantastic thing they do at Rolex is that money is getting back to poor people, to cultural initiatives, et cetera, et cetera. Besides that, they employ 10,000 people uh, in Switzerland and all over the world. So that's, uh, I think, a much better motivation to, to be successful. So- Here's another interesting question that we've never talked about, and maybe you've never thought about it. I, I've certainly thought about it a lot. Rolex is an incredible success story, not just as a watch company, but as a brand, as a luxury company, as a manufacturer, across you know many, many facets. Rolex is a, a company we're studying. And it's in the watch space. And as you know, many other companies admire Rolex, copy Rolex, not just their business decisions, but their designs even. With that said, no company has come even close to resembling a Rolex, not even a young Rolex. The question is, why is Rolex as it is so difficult to replicate? Can there only be one? What do you think is responsible for some of the special sauce that means that there can only be one uh, crownware, so to say? Yeah. That's a very good question. There are many, 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 many companies trying to copy what they do. There are many uh, people copying, as you said, the products. Many are trying to copy uh, their branding, etc. We have to go back to the 1970s where Omega was the number one watch brand in front of Rolex. So it's not dating back to two centuries, because in, to two centuries ago, Rolex was not even existing. It's about a, a little bit more than a hundred years old. So from the 1970s, there were very clever people working at Rolex. And of course, they took advantage that uh, Omega was struggling even to survive end of the 1970s, beginning of the 80s. The 
outstanding job that they are doing at Rolex is that they talk only about product. It's product, product, product. It's the excellence of the product. And everything is aligned towards one strategy. When you have one product, it fits in one territory. They don't go left, right, back, forth like many other brands do. They are not opportunistic, meaning they don't go for the short term. They do the same watches since the 1970s. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I always like uh, to, to, to come up with a small anecdote to show that. But that's, that's the strong point of Rolex is that they have everything aligned towards one goal to be the best. And one day, that's, that's a very arrogant statement, but one day, the ex-CEO, not the actual CEO, the ex-CEO said, we are not making watches, we are Rolex, meaning that they are above anyone else. And I think, unfortunately for all the other watch brands, uh, Rolex is just unique. Can, can there be another one? I don't think so. Patek is very unique in their positioning. Audemars Piguet is very unique in their positioning. Omega uh, is a general uh, brand, generalistic brand. They do very well in what they are doing. Can they catch up one day with Rolex? I hope for them. I'm an ex-Omega, so my love mark is rather Omega than Rolex. But I think Rolex does just an outstanding job uh, to have everything aligned towards one strategy. So it sounds like others could match or at least try to chase some of what Rolex did if they decided to value the same things or invest in the same way that Rolex does. So it sounds like it's a matter of priorities. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's no magic recipe. It's no geniuses. Uh, I always say uh, when you do branding, marketing, etc., it's not about being a genius and coming up with the idea that no one thought of before. Uh, as much respect as I have for Steve Jobs, he never invented the technology. He never invented something unique. But the way he assembled technology with a concept of a product was very, very clever. So that, that's what makes uh, uh, the difference. People would do good in the watch industry to look a little bit more closely at why Rolex is so successful. It's, it's not by coincidence. No, it's it's certainly not. because they apply the same rules over and over again. And fortunately for them, since about 10 years, they also have invested a lot of money to increase the quality of the product, et cetera, et cetera. For them, you know, showing every year a new watch with two millimeters less or more, et cetera, is already <laughs> a huge so, cultural change. Now, you mentioned Steve Jobs, which is probably a good entrance to our final topic, and that is smartwatches. And it's funny because I think about it, I think in the future, I don't know that smartwatches will be called smartwatches. I think they'll just be called watches and watches that are not smartwatches, traditional watches will have some other name, like maybe traditional watches or people might sadly call them dumb watches. <laughs> but smartwatches, at least as we know them today, 
have invaded many wrists, for better or worse. And I do think that smartwatches are an amazing segment and I love wearing them. They, at least for me, don't even come close to representing the same emotional connection I have to a traditional watch. They just don't have the personality, the sort of individualism. I love the Apple Watch. I think it's an incredible product. I love using it. I think it does so many things so well. Yet, I don't feel like it says anything about me when I wear it, but even a simple watch that may be a copy of a copy of a copy that's a traditional watch seems to comment a lot more about me, seems to be a more happy fashion accessory when you want to put it into those terms. So the watch industry has had a very mixed relationship with smartwatches from complete abhorrence to saying, we could do that, and then trying and not doing very well to now trying to find their slice in the watch industry, in the smartwatch industry as well, which I think they're doing better now than they, they, they did before. But just in general, what did smartwatches do to today's watch industry? And what is your opinions on the best way for the watch industry to um, potentially join in on this wave of, of innovation and consumer fascination? First point, I think we are on the same page. We shouldn't call them smartwatches. They are just watches. Once you wear an Apple watch on your wrist, there is no space for another watch. You have two wrists, okay, but you know the people telling me that you can wear on the left-hand side your Apple watch and on the right-hand side, your perpetual calendar from Patek Philippe, it's just ridiculous. You know, you, you look like a phony. It's uh, silly. It's silly. I agree. But that's totally silly. The only man uh, who we acknowledge that he was doing promotion for his brand was Mr. Hayek Sr., always <laughs> wearing at least five watches on, on one side and another three on the other. But anyway, that, that's just for the joke. But, you know, I agree. It, we, we totally lost the war and you described it very well. At the beginning, we look at them and we said, you know, guys, we do real watches. And what the watch managers in Switzerland didn't understand, and, and many of them still haven't understood, it's not about the object itself. It's not the objective itself. It's an ecosystem where you hang in, uh, where you have an entry point on your wrist. It could be around your neck or whatever, but it's by coincidence, it's on your wrist. And with the Apple Watch, it helps a lot because you can measure a lot of things. Now, the interesting point is, is that not even at Apple, there were geniuses because the number one, two, and three they sold, but this didn't sell so well. Uh, and with number four, Apple finally understood that they had to position themselves somewhere in a new market. And that market were health monitoring uh, for the people wearing it. And that was very, very clever. There was a very good article in the New York Times a few years ago when they, when they launched the Apple 4 and they said, this is the first time that Apple had to find their clients because normally they would create something when Mr. Jobs was alive, they would create something, come out and say, you never thought of having this, but now you need this to have a normal living. So this was the, the iPod, the iPhone, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that changed a lot the game, the number four. And since then that market is just exploding. Now, can the Swiss still get a chunk out of that huge uh, cake growing this year at the 20% growth rate, whereas 
And the Swiss watch industry at best, we will finish at minus 20 this year, which is bad. And for some brands, it will be minus 40, minus 50. Yes, we can get a chunk, but forget competing um, with Apple or Samsung. That war is lost. We have lost the entry level or mid inferior level because we have a strong brand. We have a, a clever uh, concept with Apple Watch. They, they have done that job perfectly. That war is over. Where the Swiss can get a small chunk of that and it will be largely uh, sufficient for them, it's in some niche positioning. I take the example of Tissot. Okay, it's 980 Swiss retail, so it's a lot more expensive than an Apple Watch, but it's not the same customer because they go into sustainable. That watch you can wear for 10, 15, 20 years. Your bloody Apple Watch will finish up uh, in the rubbish can uh, after two or three years or once you can update it with the new iOS, uh, etc. We all know this. And as you said, you have no emotional attachment to it, whereas with the Tissot, probably you will. Tissot chose the territory of outdoor, of hiking, running, whatever. Uh, you have a few functions. Of course, it's, it's by way not comparable to the, to the Apple Watch, but it's interesting to a small niche of the market. And if Tissot succeeds to sell, let's say, 30, 40, 50,000 T-Touch connected a year around the world, and I'm quite confident they will, then they have already achieved an excellent job. They are somewhere with a connected watch uh, with additional functions where you can hang in or out. That's the big difference with the Apple Watch because as soon as you wear your watch, Someone in California knows how many hours Mr. Ariel Adams has slept last night, if he does enough exercise, et cetera, et cetera. I don't like that, that point, but I agree with you. It's an extraordinary product. And you know what? I shouldn't say this, and I'm not going to name the brand, but recently <laughs> the CEO of a watch brand told me, you know what, Olivier, on the weekends, I'm wearing only my Apple Watch. It's so extraordinary. <laughs> How about this? Consider the notion that Apple is like Rolex. And here's how. Rolex creates this sort of market for luxury watches. They do, you know, this sort of like archetypal, you know, luxury men's and women's watch. And it's beautiful, but in its own kind of way, generic, right? And then it's created this umbrella of demand. And underneath that, there can be all this niche interest. And that's ostensibly the rest of the watch market, right? Is all the niche interests. Within smartwatches, it's the same way. Apple satisfies this sort of mainstream hunger. But we always know that within that mainstream, there's all these fringe elements that want a more niche product to not only you know, do things for their specific lifestyle, but maybe to communicate about who they are. And so maybe the luxury brands could treat Apple kind of the same way they treat Rolex in a lot of circumstances, assuming they get good at making smart watches to begin with, or connected watches as, as brands like Tag Heuer now like to call them. Yep. I, I, yep, definitely, I agree. That's, uh, that's the way to go. They have a chance there. Tissot, Alpina, Tag Heuer, Hublot, 
wherever. But you know, when I look, sorry to say so, I, I, I prefer to talk in, in a in positive way about the brand, but, but this time it won't be the case. When I look at Tag Heuer at their connected watch, you know, having golf courses, is this the, 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 the target clientele for a connected watch? I'm not so sure. And they came up with that. They had 200 golf courses all over the world. And Garmin came a few weeks later and they had all the golf courses around the world on their connected watch. So, you know, it's, it's, you have to really, really figure out where your brand could fit in, in a, in a brand territory. With that precise product, it can be about running, it can be about, I don't know, the hiking, whatever. And you have to figure out where to position yourself and where it fits with what your brand stands for. It's not just a product. It's a new way of connecting something that you have on your wrist with an ecosystem. And that ecosystem today sadly, is owned by a few uh, big companies around the world, which are not Swiss, obviously. I love to hear the um, the sort of zealous protectionism you have for the Swiss watch industry. I, I can tell so much that you want what's best for it. You want to succeed against, you know, the, the competition in the world. It, it, it's, it's a healthy thing. And I hope that, you know, and I, and I say this in an affectionate manner, the industry sees you as the sort of barking dog on their side, you know, <laughs> because I know that sometimes they don't necessarily like voices like ours, which are critical or uh, invading in their business as they believe. But you you ultimately have their best interests in mind. And I've always known that. And I think that your clients, of course, know that as well. Um, finally, to end out this episode of Superlative, what are some messages you have for watch brands? What are some advice you think that they can think about you know, going to the end of 2020 and into the beginning of 2021, the year that everyone has such high hopes will return us to a state of some type of familiar normalcy. Go for the long run. Don't go for the short run. Don't go after short-term trends. Uh, we are here to stay. Develop a vision. Stick to it. Uh, stick to your values. Don't underestimate the new generations of clients. Sustainable is something that is becoming more and more important. When you look at the watch brands, how they handle that topic, not many do a good job at that. Uh, I'm sure. It's very, thank you very much for your kind words. Yes, I have. I'm very much convinced that the industry will survive, but we should not focus only on the high end, on the luxury. We should be more daring also in the middle price range, in the enterprise range. Let's do crazy things. Let's convince the young people that it's cool to wear a watch, even if it's not connected. If it's connected, the better. Okay, we can add a lot of functions. So go for the long run. Stick to your values and don't change every other day or every other week your brand strategy. Olivier, thank you so much. The man is Olivier Mueller from Lux Consult. And uh, you can Google him and find him on LinkedIn and his website. Thank you again and see you everyone on the next episode of Superlative. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. 
Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?